Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Our call to worship this morning is from the Reverend Nancy McDonald Ladd. We gather in community every Sunday in a state of conflict for our very souls, a state both expansively hopeful and restrictively confined. We are hopeful that we might rise to meet a new day for those who seek and those who serve the Spirit. Hopeful that each and every one of us might encounter the sacred within, among, and between every human soul, and hopeful that such an encounter might work through us to topple the idolatries of our age. And yet we also gather as a people who are not yet free, a people confined, unfree, contained. We are confined, unfree, contained, because in this culture of division, built upon the pain of people at the margins, even the decent people hold our love too tightly, putting it in boxes, prefacing it with qualifications. I will love you if. I will see you if. I will bear the truth of my soul alongside you if and only if. You agree with me, you look like me, you stand like me, you think like me, you act like me, you sing like me, you wear your gender on your sleeve and produce it upon demand. I will love you and will meet you in the sanctuary of our hearts if and only if. You give me evidence of your good liberal virtues. If and only if. You never fail to speak the language of the movement and never weep upon a street corner out of grief that you're, of your sheer inadequacy and the vastness of the struggle that you cannot even name. We are imprisoned by these ifs and these only ifs. We are confined by the smallness of our loving even as our souls remind us that we can only get free if we all get free together. And so today, let our hopefulness mingle with our conviction. Let our willingness to love beyond our expectations or experience open us up to new truths. May there truly be more love. With no labels. And no binary. And no preface. And no qualification. And no arithmetic. And no limit. May there be more love to liberate us all. Come, let us worship together. All you have to do is enumerate exactly the way you don't feel at home in the world. To say exactly how you don't belong, and the moment you've uttered the exact dimensionality of your exile, you're already taking the path back to the way, back to the place you should be. You're already on your way home. 
Those words from poet and philosopher David White might just encapsulate everything that I'd hoped to say this morning. To have a sense of belonging is to be human, and with that knowing of belonging, we also contact the knowing of not belonging. And what David White says is that embedded in the very knowing of not belonging is, in fact, the pathway back to belonging, back to home. If he's right, friends, we are already on the pathway to the kind of belonging that we seek to create here in this congregation and here in this wider faith. Perhaps this dance of centering and decentering is not that different from the movement of belonging to not belonging and back. To know that it is not present is to create the path toward its presence. But before we get to belonging, before we find our way home, let's back up a bit. How did we get here anyway? A few months ago, Reverend Mitra Ranama came to visit with some of us clergy and congregational leaders from around the Twin Cities. I think some of you may have been there. Mitra is the editor of a book called Centering, Navigating Race, Power, and Authenticity in Ministry. In her presentation and conversation with us, she shared several definitions of the term centering, one of which has grabbed my attention and not let go. Architecturally, she told us, centering is the structure that is put in place to hold something up, a roof, a dome, an arch, a bridge, while it is being built. Let me say that again. The centering is what holds something up, what something is supported by while it is being built, but is then later removed because it's no longer needed. All right? In recent years, we've come to hear the term decentering, particularly when it's applied to race, particularly when it's applied to whiteness. The full phrase, decentering whiteness, is one that many of us hear and more or less instantly feel in our bodies in some way. Ah, yes, we might nod in our serious, earnest way. Ah, yes, we might nod in joyful and eager anticipation. Ah, yes, some of us may nod in uncertainty and perhaps even fear. Ah, yes, surely, if we are committed to racial justice, if we are committed to undoing racism in our communities, in our church, and in our world, then of course we do not want to center whiteness. Who could argue with that? But what then do we want to center? Turns out that that question is much more complicated, at least it is for me, and I hope so for you as well. If not now, then hopefully by the time we are done with this service. And what of belonging? How do centering, decentering, and belonging fit together? Do they? I want to share three stories with you, each of which illuminates some aspect of this question. Back in May, I had the opportunity to sit a three-and-a-half-day silent meditation retreat with the Common Ground Meditation Center. How many of you have sat a silent meditation retreat of any duration? All right, quite a few of you. 
Fantastic. Um, so then you're familiar that like many Buddhist retreats, this retreat was conducted in what's called noble silence. What that meant is that after dinner on that first night, we did not speak, not to each other, not to ourselves, and we took the added step of avoiding eye contact. Basically, our silence extended beyond our voices to any form of intentional communication with the other 20-some people who were on the retreat. Now, obviously, we could speak in the event of an emergency if we needed to for one of the volunteer jobs we were doing, but the intent of the practice was to remove as much as humanly possible of our everyday lives so that we could be in a state of continuous presence, continuous mindfulness, continuous meditation, or at least as continuous as possible. So 20-some people with backgrounds not unlike ours, in fact, I know that many of you have probably sat with Common Ground before, so we're sitting there in total silence together, and mid-morning on that first day, I had a sudden awareness that I was in a totally different culture to what I was used to, a deep sense that I was a visitor in someone else's religious culture and practice. It wasn't any single thing that someone did, and it certainly wasn't anything that someone said, but I was very deeply aware that I wasn't in my religious home anymore, that I was visiting someone else's, and that I didn't quite know all the rules, even though I'd sat with common ground many years ago and wasn't exactly a foreigner to that culture at all. Friends, that is the power of culture. Even in a room of total silence, culture is so powerful that it can tell us silently implicitly when we don't know the rules, when we might be accidentally infringing on a community's norms. Culture can tell us silently when we don't belong. But as I sat there, I realized that it wasn't so much that I didn't belong as it was that my, myself, the person that I think I am and that's reinforced by day-to-day -day life, that self was being decentered. Being in a different religious culture was part of it, but so was having everything else stripped away, too. All of the things that I might distract myself with, with work, my phone, people, conversation, pretty much everything was stripped away. What I was left with was myself, but not the everyday me. Rather, this mind, this heart that's present even when everything else falls away. It turns out that there's a lot more happening here than I generally attend to on a day-to-day -day basis. It turns out that being decentered made room for more. If one definition of centering is the thing that holds up a structure while it's being built, another perspective on centering views it as the practice of making something the focus of attention. I raise up this aspect of centering because I suspect that some of us, perhaps many of us, live lives in which we are relatively centered. Now, I should note that I say those words with a lot of male, cisgendered class privilege. I can talk about my life as being one in which I'm centered because of the social location that I inhabit. I know that many others do not feel centered at all as they move through the world. But as I look around this room, I suspect that a fair number of you move through the world with a fair degree of ease and comfort. 
Every moment isn't much of a struggle, and the spaces that you move through feel comfortable to you. When our identities are centered, we often feel a sense of safety and a sense that we belong. A couple of years back, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel and Palestine with a multi-faith, inter-religious group from United Seminary. And while there, I had two experiences less than 24 hours apart of having an aspect of my identity centered in a fairly radical way that was in one instance deeply uncomfortable and deeply affirming in the other. The discomfort commenced when I landed in Jerusalem. As I left the plane at the top of the jetway, I was stopped by a security officer who asked where I was coming from, why I was there, and was it my first time in Israel? I answered, and he stepped aside to let me continue. And in my peripheral vision, I saw him say, th say something into a phone or a radio. And I had an inkling that this might not go well. After grabbing my bags, I walked up to a border control line and handed my passport to the person in the booth. She looked at my photo. She looked back at me and then asked two questions, and by the end of those questions, I knew that I was in trouble. Her first question, what is your father's full name? Followed by her second, what was his father's full name? Heart sinking, I answered. She looked at me, asked a perfunctory question about my purpose there, which we both knew she wasn't interested in, and then keeping my passport, directed me to an enclosure against the wall with some chairs telling me to wait and that someone would come for me. I walked over to find about 15 other men and women, most of whom were brown, all of whom I quickly realized were Muslim. You see, her question about the names in my family revealed to her that I have my father's name as my middle name, and he had his father's name as his middle name. It's a tradition in Muslim families, mostly unknown, unless, of course, one is trying to identify Muslims. Eight hours later, I was handed my passport and allowed to depart the airport, but not before a couple of rounds of questioning, including a couple interrogations with a good cop, bad cop pair, one who seemed to have stepped out of a J. Crew ad, the other appearing to have been sent by central casting in a call for large, menacing, and with a Russian accent. <laughs> so friends, it was with some trepidation that I was out walking the streets around our hotel at 4.30 the next morning, jet-lagged out of my mind, and desperately seeking a cup of coffee. Turns out that Jerusalem, or at least the area that we stayed in, doesn't get up early. And as I walked, finding myself in an increasingly residential neighborhood, I couldn't help but wonder if some other early riser was going to see me walking and call the authorities. I mean, I'd just been told pretty clearly that in the eyes of the state, I was suspicious. But armed with the privilege and arrogance of knowing I had an American passport in my pocket and frankly, really wanting a cup of coffee, I pressed on and soon came to a small triangular corner that held a couple of shops. One looked like a mini supermarket and was closed, but the other looked like a cafe and its door was a crack open. I knocked, poked my head in, and saw a big guy behind the counter who was prep prepping pastries to go into the oven. 
He looked up at me and then with a huge smile on his face said, How was India? Come in. (laughs) Two instances, less than 24 hours apart, in which both sides of my religious and ethnic identity were deeply seen and deeply centered. One alarming and quite uncomfortable, and the other deeply welcoming and affirming. I went to that cafe every day for the rest of the time that we were in Jerusalem, knowing that I'd I'd be seen, that I'd be welcomed. It became a little oasis of belonging for me. Perhaps it isn't centering that is or isn't bad. Perhaps it's the purpose, the intent, the energy that we bring to it. Do we center to exclude and draw the circle inwards? Or do we center in ways that foster a sense of safety, of being seen? Are we centering to draw the circle wider? The last story I want to share is a story about how the Reverend Meg Riley, a colleague and a friend, over a cup of coffee asked me a question that both centered and decentered me in a way that profoundly changed my life. I had just transitioned to working for a philanthropic collaborative that supported work at the intersection of spiritual practice and social transformation. Meg and I talked about the field of transformative social change and the the organization that I worked for believed that to create change in the world we needed to also foster different ways of being, of, of showing up, showing up in ourselves and with each other. And we believed that spiritually rooted practices applied in secular contexts might be a pathway toward doing that. That might sound kind of familiar to some of you. I had a hunch that we were basically recreating a lot of what faith communities already knew a great deal about, and Meg and I had gotten to talking because she was the new senior minister of the Church of the Larger Fellowship and was curious about what I had learned during my tenure at the Progressive Technology Project and the organization that I was presently working for. Long story short, we had a lot of meetings over coffee at the Blue Moon Cafe on Lake Street. Our conversations were wide-ranging. They were deep and really quite wonderful. Folks in the cafe probably saw the sparks and the sparkles and the rainbows swirling around us. They were those kinds of conversations. And so one day, Meg and I were starting to wrap up our conversation when she paused and asked, so when are we gonna see you in a seminary classroom? because you sure seem to be there already. Inside, I freaked out. But I think I managed to smile and awkwardly deflect and sort of keep it together. You see, with that question, Meg had unknowingly created an opening in which I could speak out loud a longing that was growing in my heart, a longing to embark on the path toward ministry. I didn't say it that day, but the space had been created. And here's why that mattered. Meg's question did what it did because of three things that I think are important when we are thinking about belonging, centering, and decentering. Meg had invited me into a place of belonging. Our conversations, the relationship that we'd developed, all of it added up to a feeling of being at home. And that sense of belonging meant that when she asked me that question, it was a moment of profound centering for me. 
She was seeing all of me, even the parts that I thought were hidden. And what that meant was that in that place of belonging, of being seen and centered, I was safe enough to be decentered. I could move aside all the objections in my mind and make space for the more that was in my heart, the more that brought me here to this moment today. Meg's question drew the circle wider, not in a naive, we're all the same sort of way, but in a deeply personal, I see you and want you to know that you're welcome here sort of way. In a way, her question made space for the centering. Reach back to that architectural term. It made space for the centering, for my stuff, what I thought I needed to hold me up, to be set aside so that more could come forth. Friends, the moment we start to articulate the ways that we don't belong is the moment that we start on the pathway toward belonging. And that's a moment that is here in our congregation and here in our wider movement. The people of color that I speak with, and I include myself in this, are longing for more. And what I think is true, and I know that not everyone sees it this way, but what I believe to be true is that when I talk about decentering whiteness in our lives and in our communities, I am not at all suggesting that we put some other culture at the center. We are already entirely too multicultural for that. No, when I talk about centering and decentering, I am talking about the movement toward belonging, where centering and decentering are the expression of our naming the ways we haven't belonged, the ways we haven't been centered enough, and start to find our way toward a place where we can set aside, where we can decenter the structural and architectural centering that we think holds us up. Friends, it's time to remove the centering. Whatever was put in place when this was all being built, I don't think we need it anymore. Whether that be a cultural expression rooted in whiteness or gender expression grounded in patriarchy or an economy grounded in extraction and exploitation of people and the earth or any of the other bits of centering that are getting in the way of the more that is already here. There is a dance of centering and decentering. There is a song that is longing to be sung. I can feel it. And I know that many of you can feel it too. We are trying to learn the steps even while we're fumbling for the next notes, but we are doing it and we will do it together. May it be so and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.